So glad to see you here this morning. If you have a Bible with you, with you, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 25. Proverbs chapter 25, and the, the text will be on the screen as well. We're working our way, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're working our way through the book of Proverbs, and it is one of my firm convictions, kind of a first principled conviction, that wherever I am in the Bible, I will find Christ there in some way. And if I don't see him there, it's just because my vision is lacking, not because uh, the word isn't all about Jesus, because I genuinely believe that it is. And so as we were planning the Proverbs series, I made sure that I felt like, well, do I understand how I could preach from Proverbs 25 on Easter? And thought, yeah, well, I think so. And so you guys will have to decide whether I was right in staying through Proverbs on this Easter morning. The text for this morning is verse 25 of Proverbs 25. It says, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. So you can see that these two Proverbs are connected. They have something to do with water. It's good to remember in this moment that this was written in a very arid climate. Water was of great value. People often were thirsty. Think about this. This is a strange thought. People that read this probably knew someone or of someone who died of thirst. Right? It's just, it's just a remarkable idea for us. So when this text says that cold water to a thirsty soul, like cold water to a thirsty soul, is good news from a far country, and like a muddied spring or polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. You can almost imagine if I started uh, creating a, a pretty intensive sermon illustration on Chick-fil-A. You can almost imagine I'd get a little salivary response. Well, if you were in this original audience and you heard about cold water from a spring, you would think, oh my goodness, that sounds really good. And if you were in that audience, you would also find this second idea is quite disgusting and all too problematic, and that is not all the water, even when you did find water, was good for drinking. So the idea of these texts are pretty straightforward. The first verse is simply this. It is a very refreshing thing to hear good news from a far country. And I can think of a number of examples of that, but take, for instance, anything that happens in a country far away that somehow portends well for us. Think, not many of us were around during this time, but think Victory Day over Japan at the end of World War II. That was news in a far country that felt like cold water to a thirsty soul. So that's the idea of verse 25. And the idea of verse 26 is, that, uh, is also pretty straightforward and honestly, sadly familiar. Look at verse 26 again with me, just so we're clear. Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain, this is something very valuable to them, water, and it's polluted or muddied. Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Again, this seems pretty straightforward, seeing a righteous man overtaken by evil in some way, whether by compromise or just by oppression and injustice. I think we all know what that looks like. I have no shortage of examples to put before you. Now, I think that it's an unfortunate reality that often these two verses work together. 
Let me explain what I mean by that. It's an unfortunate reality that often these two verses work together. Namely, it feels like there are plenty of instances in all of our experiences where something looks like it's good and refreshing and then turns out to be compromised in some way. Uh, Unfortunately, I think we've all been living in essentially some kind of a cycle of Proverbs 25 and 26, really for the last 10, 15, 20 years. All these things that we would have preferred to trust in, that we were hoping to trust in, turn out to be not trustworthy, turn out to be compromised. There's a word for this sort of thing, and I've been studying this a little bit here and there, and the word that is often used is the word demoralization. Demoralization. It's actually a psychological warfare term, but what it means really is just that it, it, it operates on different axes, but essentially demoralization is, is a constant sort of disappointment and disillusionment, a constant sense of disorientation even. Uh, one, one writer who deals with this subject says that there's you know, four different kinds of demoralization that all kind of work together. And when a culture is being demoralized, you'll see these at work. And the first is moral. Somehow it is made difficult for people to discern between right and wrong. And the second is perceptual. Uh, Sometimes it it becomes, a, a culture finds it difficult to discern between real and fake. And the third is social. It becomes difficult to discern who can be trusted and who cannot be trusted. And the fourth is epistemic, which just means knowledge. It, it becomes difficult to know what is true and what is false. And if we're caught in a cycle of Proverbs 25 only to become, Proverbs 25, 25 only to find out we're in 26, if we're caught in a cycle where things look good and trustworthy and then we find out they're polluted and we just keep bouncing back between those two things over and over and over again, you could see how demoralization would happen. We're just like, I mean, what can I trust anymore? What's real anymore? What's right anymore? Well, I want you to consider that there was a period of time in the early disciples' lives when these two verses were at work in their experience related to Jesus. First of all, the first verse, like cold water to a thirsty soul is good news from a distant land. Literally, when Jesus appeared on the scene, they took him to be the good news. They took him to be the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one. Everything about Jesus in his earthly ministry up to the cross is signaling that he is the good news from heaven. Even the angels at the birth of Jesus announce glad tidings of great joy to all of the earth, right? And so their experience with Jesus initially is that he was the good news from the distant land, the distant land being the heaven itself, the very throne room of God. Jesus was, to them, a refreshing spring, a cold drink of water in a weary land. He was refreshment to their souls. Even Jesus' name signaled this. His name means God saves. And so everything about Jesus in the disciples' experience was very Proverbs 25, 25. He was the good news from the most distant of lands, heaven itself. And they experienced great refreshing for their souls. But then on Friday, he was arrested. 
and tortured and crucified and wound up being dead well before sundown. And just like that, the disciples' experience with Jesus went from being a verse 25 experience to looking like a verse 26 experience. Verse 26, just so, just so we're remembering what that says, says, like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Now, in Jesus' case, they would not have thought that Jesus compromised, but what they would have thought is that the wicked had won, that Jesus gave way and that he was not sufficiently strong enough to stand up under the massive multi-tiered conspiracy at work against him. What they would have felt is demoralization. They would have gone from thinking they knew someone they could trust, thinking they knew someone they could count on, to suddenly looking and thinking, oh my goodness, have I been drinking from a polluted spring this whole time? Have I just been drinking the Kool-Aid? Has the public water just been tainted this whole time with poison and I didn't know it? You see, their whole experience of Jesus, I think on Saturday, if they were just thumbing through their Bibles and they came across Proverbs 25 and 26, they would have thought, I thought he was this, and now I fear he's this. He seemed to me to be good news to my soul. And now here I am, having just watched this one I trusted in being overcome by the wicked. Of course, uh, it's not, I'm not ruining the end of the movie for anyone. They found out that they were wrong. On Sunday, they discovered that Jesus had risen. And in the process, and friends, I'll tell you what, I could, I could legitimately, if everybody just take what I'm about to say and apply it, I could work myself out of a job just with this one sentence. I, I, this might be the most profound and important thing I ever tell you. One of the incredible gifts given to the disciples as a consequence of this drama that they had gone through, as a consequence of finding their Savior risen, one of the most incredible gifts they received was that they had been taught to doubt their doubts. That's it. They had been taught to doubt their doubts about God. You understand what I'm saying? They'd gone through the whole cycle of demoralization. They'd thought he was something, and then it turned out, well, maybe he's not anything. And then, of course, on Sunday, they find out, no, I was right the first time. He really was something. He's actually more something than I thought. And of all of the incredible gifts we receive because of our risen Lord, one of the most incredible we learned from the disciples on that Sunday. It's a sweet thing to learn to be suspicious of your suspicions toward God. It's a sweet thing to learn to be dubious toward your doubts about God. Friends, that in and of itself practically changed the disciples' lives. As this wasn't the last time they would be caught in a difficult situation. Indeed, not many years after this, they would go to prison and often be led to death and so on and so forth. They would suffer many setbacks. Their own churches would sometimes turn on them. There would be wolves rising up amongst the sheep and leading them astray and so on and so forth. But friends, something had happened on Easter weekend, the very first Easter weekend, that changed the course of history forever 
a group of leaders learned that when they doubt God, they should doubt themselves. They should doubt their doubts. They should be suspicious of their suspicions. And here's what I would pass on to you. Whenever you think Jesus is disappointing you, I promise you that it will all turn out with egg on your face. And honestly, friends, that doesn't always feel so bad. It honestly doesn't always feel so bad to be proven wrong once again by the God who is greater. You see, I'm okay being wrong, I think. I just don't want God to be wrong. I'm okay failing. I, I just don't want God to fail. And one of the great gifts that God gives you when you doubt him is he proves you wrong and he makes you feel stupid. And it feels really good to have felt stupid, to feel stupid forever doubting God. It feels really good to learn how to doubt your doubts and be suspicious of your suspicions toward God. A whole new category, a whole new way of relating to God opened up to them. They learned to not take everything on face value, but to walk and proceed in the way that Jesus had taught them all along by every word that proceeds from their mouth. Will Jesus ever disappoint you? No, he will not. Will he surprise you constantly? Will he keep you in suspense? Absolutely. Will he force you to wait? Uh-huh. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> not a fan of that move. But will he ever disappoint you? He will not ever disappoint you. And whenever you think he's disappointing you, I want you to remember the disciples who thought for a second and felt like fools for the rest of their lives. Well, maybe he isn't who he said he would be. No, no, no. He is more than you ever thought he would be. And this is what Jesus is doing, just so you understand, when you're feeling disappointed with him, when you're sulking and writing your psalms of lament, feel free, by the way, what else are you going to do? But while you're over there disoriented, demoralized, and doubting, here's what God's doing. He's really just giving you more than you ever could ask and imagine. That's the lesson of the resurrection. The thing you're disappointed in with God, whatever it is or whatever it will be one day, all you're doing is you're just, your plate's too small. You're getting impatient because God's not handing, filling your plate with what you want. And he's just waiting and waiting. You need a bigger plate. And waiting and struggling and asking and wondering gives you a bigger plate. So whenever you think God's disappointing, you just understand two things will happen. He will blow your mind. He will exceed your expectations and you'll feel dumb. And both of those things, quite honestly, are quite worshipful. I think God loves doing that, and I think we ought to not, not embrace doubting him, but I think we ought to revel in the opportunities to say, God, my faith was too small yet again. God, I questioned you. Why would I question you time and time again? So whenever it looks like he's losing, he's just winning in a way you hadn't even thought, thought about. Whenever it looks like he's letting you down, he's actually just securing more than you can ask or imagine. Whenever it looks like he's contradicting himself, he's just going to show you how wise and beautiful and good and true he is. And so the resurrection is this remarkable gift. It, 
it created a people, a culture within the church where we, of course, we have doubts, but we take our cues from this very first resurrection weekend and say, maybe I should doubt my doubts a little bit. It's only Saturday after all, and Sunday's coming. Well, the next thing I want to show, and, and I, I hope that this isn't overly dry for you, but I try to do this every year. I want to show you the role that the resurrection plays just generally in our doubts. Um, there are all sorts of ways that we can feel demoralized in our faith and demoralized in life generally. And I want to show you that the resurrection is, well, how many of you know what a truck runoff lane is? Y'all seen those in the, in the mountains, typically? I've seen them in Colorado. I've seen them on the, in the Smoky Mountains. And the idea, just in case you're not familiar, is, is that, you know, big semis are just way heavier than you can possibly imagine. And their brakes work pretty well, but you've really got to know what you're doing when you're allowing that much weight to move down a hill. And so there's a, kind of a high margin for error in the truck driving world in this particular moment. It's, it's really possible that you don't nail the landing, so to speak, and your brakes will actually just melt off your truck. And I think, I think I've actually seen, I don't know if I just have a vivid imagination or if I've actually seen a, a, a truck wheel on, tire, on fire before uh, because of the brakes. I know it happens. And so they, they build these truck runoff lanes, and essentially what they are is it's just a, it's just a, a, a lane that comes off the right of the, of the highway going downhill, and it allows a truck to pull in there under kind of emergency, no brake situations. And that, that runoff lane is just full of like sand and loose dirt and so forth, so that truck just kind of gets buried in all of that debris and stops it from moving forward. What well, I think it's important that you understand that the resurrection is that to your sort of doubts and semi-temptations to deconstruct. And here's what I mean by that. It, let me just make it super simple. This actually happened, friends. This is the foundational bedrock of our faith. And so if you're barreling down, and friends, I, I had this terrible habit. When I was a child, I was... I was called Doubting Thomas in Sunday school. I, I overthink things. I tend to overanalyze situations. And that's, gonna, I think, going to be helpful here in a moment. But I just have always done that. Angela and I went to the arcade the other night downtown. They have all the 80s games of our, well, unfortunately, not our childhood, our, our teens and our 20s. And uh, uh, we, we played uh, Street Fighter. She, Angela, always beats me at these games. She is terrible at video games, but she constantly, we, I never win when we play any of these fighting games. And that is because she is just mashing buttons, you know, and just move, like just doing this, like just basically like what she normally does with her body, but with the video game. She uses all of her wiggles to her advantage. And I always lose because I'm, I'm trying to analyze, like, okay, what's the right move here, and so on. Meanwhile, I got Berserker Girl over next to me, and she's <laughs> destroying me time and time again. And this has been a habit of mine for a very long time. And I just, I, I want to say that because um, I don't know anyone, especially in a, that's a pastor, that has more in reflexive skepticism toward things of faith than I do. And it's been a part of my life, my whole life. 
And I, I feel like that's important to share when discussing some of this that I'm going to discuss about here. So yeah, I was doubting Thomas in Sunday school. This other kid in Sunday school, he he was he got the book. We got books named like kind of the described our personalities, and he got um, Barabbas the Outlaw. And uh, I just bring that up because now I found out that this kid I went to Sunday school was running for uh, political office, <laughs> which fits every one of my preconceived notions. <laughs> I think he's actually running for Congress, if I'm not mistaken. So little has changed in either of our lives, I suspect. But the truth is, is that I just have been the kind of person to struggle with really all, all of the possible claims of Christianity. I've I've done the deep dives. I've really, I've really asked, is this true? Is this not? You see, I've never felt vocationally trapped in ministry. You know, Angela and I joke that we looked out across all the possible jobs and said, which one has the most responsibility and the least pay? And we picked it. So I'm not just blowing smoke to, like, keep a job or draw a crowd or anything like that. Those things have just never really moved my needle. I'm this doubtful kind of guy who really doesn't feel the need to manipulate or lie about something like this. If, if one day in my studies I just concluded, well, this isn't true, I'll just go do something else. I just thought like a bouncer at a nightclub would be fun. <laughs> well, so I, I bring all that up to say that I've really done my homework on this basic question. Did this actually happen? Because if this did actually happen, then that's the runoff lane when your doubts go crazy. This is the bedrock. This is where you go, and you can know it will get you, it will grab you, and it will hold, and it is true, and so on. So is it actually that? Or is it just sort of a faith claim that you either believe or you don't, so on and so forth? Well, I want to be clear, this isn't a faith claim. This is a historical claim. And I've gone through all of the work for all of these years examining, can I tell someone in good conscience, no bluffing, no blowing smoke, friends, this actually did happen. Well, that's my cold water for your thirsty souls this morning. It really did happen. It really did happen. A man who claimed to be God was crucified, rose from the dead. That, that actually did happen. And I can't possibly anticipate all of the various objections, all of the various alternative theories that have come in. I can't do that this morning. If you would like to ask me about one of them, I probably know about it. Um, but I, I do want to take just a little bit of time this morning, won't be long, to walk you through just some bare minimal facts relating to this, to help this be the bedrock for you in your doubts, to help this be the, 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 the runoff lane for you when your brakes fail. So a few things. What we know, and I think I've got most of this on slides, Jesus was a real historical person. Uh, anyone who claims any level of academic scholarship or credibility who denies this is wrong, and all of the most ardent skeptics who are also New Testament scholars uh, who don't believe that Jesus is God, so on and so forth, they would rat it, they would, they would firmly oppose any suggestion that Jesus was not a historical person. They would say, yes, absolutely, Jesus was a historical person. We have plenty of evidence that he was crucified. 
By the way, all of this I'm giving you is independent of you believing that God's word is inspired. Okay, so I think it is, but that's because of another set of facts, and I'm not going to share those this morning. So I'm just going to give you information that is true no matter what you think about the Bible, so long as you grant the Bible the same amount of authority or credibility that you would just any book of history describing things. So Jesus really did exist. We have plenty of evidence that he was crucified, and we now understand that crucifixion leads to death 100% of the time. Uh, maybe you've heard of the swoon theory that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but that he was just super beat up and then recovered while laid in the grave. They thought he was dead and he recovered. That theory has basically been abandoned by all credible, by, by significant numbers of credible skeptics. I actually don't know when the last time was that I heard it from a modern skeptic. And the reason for that is, is that a bunch of scientists, uh, you got to love scientists, they decided to go ahead and do the research and crucify people and see what happened to them. And so they signed up for volunteers. Can you imagine, like, responding to one of those Craigslist ads? And he's like, you know, research needed, you know, uh, medical participants needed for a research experiment, you know, $100, you know. And you arrive, they're like, okay, here's the plan. <laughs> they didn't put nails in their hands or anything like that. They just, they, just, uh, they just took them through the various stages of hanging them on a cross. And what they found, and this is multiple studies, what they found is, is that when you hang someone like this, the pectoral muscles, um, uh, I think is the pect yeah, th they press down on the lungs in such a way that the average person can remain conscious for, for up to about 11 minutes. And then after that, you just, you're not conscious anymore. You don't have any oxygen. And so you would just asphyxiate if you were in this position for more than 11 minutes. And so they moved on to stage two, of the experiment, and they said, well, well, let's give them something simulating their feet being nailed. They didn't nail their feet. Uh, so they uh, put a little platform down there, just like, I think probably something just to put a foot on, barely, sort of simulate that experience. And so now you're, you're about to pass out if you're the subject, and then you go ahead and put your weight on that thing, and you, you get kind of more like a this posture, and you can breathe again. And then your legs start to cramp up eventually, and you drop back down into this posture. And now you can't breathe. And this is what you're doing when you're being crucified. You're just doing this dance between asphyxiation and consciousness. And so what they found is, is uh, one, of the, one of the main skeptics, also you know, not a Christian, one of the main skeptics said firmly this, crucifixion, 100% of the time, leads to death. There's no way to not die when being crucified. There's a bunch of other evidence against the swim theory, but what we know so far, Jesus was real, he died on a cross. Uh, we also know that many people claim to see him and interact with Jesus after his death. And we know that some of those people were skeptics and had built their whole lives in the opposite direction, um, ardently indeed persecuting those who claim that Jesus had risen now, one of the most important things for people to grasp hold of and related to that is, is that one of the skeptics was Jesus' own brother, James, who did not believe that Jesus, did not believe Jesus' delusions of grandeur. And you can imagine sibling dynamics working out this way. It's probably a middle child, James. <laughs> anyway, so, 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 the skeptic, so there are actual skeptics who encountered what they did not want to encounter, what they did not believe in. Now, this is also important because understand that the message of, that Jesus was raised from the dead was taught immediately. It was not invented at some later date. 
uh, throw all your Da Vinci stuff back in the kindergarten Lego box where it belongs. You're not a real thinker if you like. Like, I, I don't mean to be demeaning, but it's juvenile, sophist nonsense. What we know is that immediately following the purported resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus began to be the central thing taught and proclaimed immediately, not hundreds of years afterward, immediately. Now, why is this important? Well, consider where it was preached. It was preached in Jerusalem. Why does that matter? Jerusalem's not a large city. Okay, so the central message of the early preaching regarding the resurrection is the tomb is empty. And if I told you the tomb is empty and the tomb was in Manila, Philippines, or uh, the tomb is empty and it's in Shanghai, I don't imagine many of you would book a flight. But if I told you that right now, in addition to having delicious barbecue, there's an empty tomb at Jack Stack's, you'd probably make your way over there. It's, after all, just down the street. It's just down many streets these days. So this is a very important idea because for this message to gain any popularity or credence in the time it was proclaimed, we have this, these two big issues. We have a tomb that can be immediately examined by those who are hearing the message, and we have all of these witnesses who have been named who can be immediately questioned. In addition to all of the other difficulties involving the conspiracy idea of covering up that Jesus was indeed really dead. And one of the really interesting things to think about is, is if this is the way to start a religion, why, haven't we just, why, why don't we just do this a lot? Why don't we just fake a death, hide a body, so on and so forth? It's actually not as easy as people suggest it would be to get away with that level of complexity. I've tried, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> one of the most important things as it relates to the skeptical kind of perspective is, is that Everyone considers Paul to have been a real historical person, and he's considered to have a formidable intellect. He's considered to be a top-tier, high-octane thinker. And so when you see his conversion, that really counts for something. And then we have 1 Corinthians, who everybody agrees was written by Paul. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, here are the witnesses, here's who saw it, I saw it too, so on and so forth. And he tells us indeed that at one time, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. One of the alternative theories about the resurrection is that everybody was so stricken by grief that they simply had an, a, a grief-related hallucination that, that Jesus was there. It's like, well, we, you don't have group hallucinations where interaction occurs at this detail and so on and so forth. It doesn't work. That's not a viable ex explanatory theory. And then we find the details of the resurrection. There are so many details of the resurrection that are just so imperfect and don't make any sense if you're creating this from scratch. For instance, in the Jewish law at the time, women were simply not allowed to testify, to have any validity in their testimony, and yet who do we see, as the text I read this morning in Luke 24, to be the very first witnesses of the resurrection? Women. If you were going to design a conspiracy, you would not put women in that category. You also wouldn't include another really interesting detail, and that is, is that many times when the disciples first saw the risen Christ, they did not recognize him. Well, that's just a terrible detail to, to create, to convince people, right? That's something that I have to overcome to show that it's real. Uh, it's, it's, it's an obstacle, actually. It's not, a, it's not a useful detail at all. 
And so I can just tell you that in the way that you can know that Abraham Lincoln was alive or that birds are real, crazy young weirdos, I could, some of you are like, why did he say that? You, be glad you don't know why I said that. <laughs> I can tell you that in the way that we use our brains to determine whether something is real or not, this really happened. And so let that be your runoff lane. When you maybe use the brakes a little poorly, maybe your doubts are a little more than they should be, you don't doubt your doubts like I suggested you do, and you kind of run away, you're like, okay, was this any of this real? Like, is, Jesus, is, is Christianity a Proverbs 25, 25 thing? Is it, is it cold water for my soul, or is it just yet another toxic pond of compromise? Well, here is the spring I tell you for sure has held up. For 2,000 years. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And this son took on the sins of mankind, the sins of those whom he would save, and he bore the wrath of God against that sin, the wrath that we deserve to bear for eternity. As an infinite being, he received our infinite torture, our infinite punishment, and after suffering, he died on a cross. He was buried in a tomb identified by everyone behind a rock too big to move by a wounded man, man for instance. And he appeared to many witnesses for 40 days. And I think the key piece of testimony I haven't mentioned yet is, is that as a result, as a result of telling the world that this man had risen from the dead, all of the disciples went on to receive influential appointments in both government and defense. Con no, no, no. They all got thrown into jail. They all got beaten. They all got punished. They all got murdered. They suffered for what they believed was true, not for some agenda, as Peter would say, some cleverly devised myth. Let's go back to the text one, one more time, and I'm almost done. We're back on verse 25, Proverbs 25, 25, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. And I just want to tell you this this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is good news from the most distant lands. He is the good news from the distant land of heaven. If you tr tr trust in him, you're welcome there now. He is the good news from the distant land of death. You have nothing to fear there anymore. He went there and took care of that for you. And he is even the good news from the distant land of your own heart, which sometimes feel just, feels just as far away uh, as heaven itself. In John 7, 37, Jesus stood up on the last day of a feast they were celebrating and said, he, he stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so the question is, do you believe in him? I think the basic idea of the message this morning is that in addition to the resurrection removing the power of death, the resurrection removes the power of doubt. Death, we still have to deal with death. It's still on our radar. It's, it's nothing we want or look forward to necessarily. 
Jesus has removed the sting of death, right? This is what he has done to doubt as well. Exact same thing. He has shown us in the most vivid way possible that when we are doubting him the most, we are simply the most mistaken. And he will always prove himself to be faithful. He will never fail you. He will never lie to you. He will never demoralize you. I saw a preacher, a nice, fiery, Latin preacher, Brazilian, I believe, actually. And he told this story, and I want to pass this story on to you. I think he said it was a dream of his that he had. On one side of it was a man sitting on a fence, and on one side of the fence stood an angel, and on the other side of the fence, a devil. And the angel was constantly encouraging this man to get off the fence and join him. Get off the fence and join me. Get off the fence and join me. And the devil just wasn't saying anything at all. And the angel kept up his appeals. Please, just get off the fence and come over. Come with me to God. And the devil's just silent. The man was intrigued. Saw the angel pleading. Understood that. Couldn't understand why the devil wasn't pleading. And he looked at the devil and he said, I've been sitting here this whole time and you haven't said a word. And the devil said, oh, that's because the fence is mine. Honestly, friends, what I've brought to you today is enough. You don't need to be on the fence. What I've brought to you is enough to get you off the devil's fence and to put your faith in Jesus and to walk with him. And so I just want to ask you, like, what else could there be that you would need? And if you were really realistic with yourself, I think the answer would be, change in my heart a change in my heart that's what I need because the evidence is the evidence a change in my heart that's what I need well, I want to ask you maybe you know this whenever Jesus would heal somebody what would he do right afterward well he would tell them to use the thing that they couldn't use does that make sense like he would a guy who didn't have legs that guy who had legs that didn't work he would say Okay, now rise up and walk, right? Friends, if you are waiting for God to change your heart and give you faith, call out to him right now as if he has given you what he has promised to give you. Rise up and walk. Put your faith in Jesus today. Let him be your savior. He is the good news and he isn't going to go bad. I can't promise that about anything else. How will you make your way through life without a single thing you can trust? What toll will that take on you over time? Well, Jesus is here, and he's ready to be wholly trusted. Our communion text for today comes from the chapter of Luke that I read earlier. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 35, this is right after Jesus appears on the Emmaus Road. And they go back to the disciples and they're all kind of confabbing. It says, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. 
They told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And they were talking about these things. Jesus stood himself, uh, stood him, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So if you're here today and you've felt this good news crash on your soul like cold water in a parched land, would you come and celebrate the Lord's table with us today? Whether you're a member here or not, if, the, if you heard the good news and felt the good news, would you come and receive the table today with us? Let me pray and then you come. Lord God, we pray that you would honor yourself as we observe your table. And Lord, we pray for anyone here who's on the fence. We're thankful, God, that you love us, that you're patient with us. But we pray, God, for transformation, for heart turning to you. In Jesus' name.